Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Experience Podcast. I'm Randy Silver. And I'm Lily Smith, and this is episode 10. Woohoo! Happy Woo! episode birthday, Randy! <laughs> <laughs> Yay! 10 episodes, wow. And we've got a great interview to celebrate this week with Holly Donahue, product director from Akilah Haywood. She's obsessed with continuous improvement, and I think it really shows in this episode of the podcast. Yeah, and Holly did a talk at MTP Engage in Manchester about prioritization. She's been on such an interesting and kind of familiar journey that we just had to talk more about what that's been like. So without further ado, let's chat to Holly. So Holly, you and I were both presenting the other week in Manchester at MTP Engage, and I really loved your presentation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to uh, do a presentation on prioritization? Yeah, so I work for a software company. I'm a product director there. We build financial software for the pensions industry. And I've kind of been involved with Product Tank quite a bit. So it seemed like the next step to actually present it, mind the product. So why prioritization? So prioritization is something that we spent quite a lot of time working on as an organization. So a while ago, we moved from very waterfall ways of working to very agile ways of working. And we found that with as part of that, our product process needed to evolve. So previously, we'd kind of been agreeing content nine months ahead and locking that down and then change controlling it. And you can't do that when you're working in an agile way. And so it's something that we spent a lot of time doing is working out how can we actually start to agree what we're going to be building and how can we actually prioritize what we need to be building and so it's something that I guess we spent a lot of time trying to work out. And how long has the um, so you mentioned you've moved from waterfall to agile and I've been a little bit through this process myself how how much time have you been spending making this change? So we started probably two and a half years ago and the change, obviously, the pace of change has probably slowed now as we've become more mature in those ways of working. Um, a lot of people say, are you done yet? And I don't think there ever is a, an end to this. I think it's <laughs> an ongoing thing. Um, it probably took us about a year to to make the biggest changes. So how big is Akil Hayward? What's the um, the size of the development team and the development organization, the product and development organization? So it's probably a bit more of a complicated question than it is normally. So right now we've got 100 people. Um, just uh, That's only a recent thing. So up until November, we were actually kind of two companies joined together and we had 220 people. And that was when we actually, at the time we made all these changes, that was how big we were. Um, however, we've sold off half of the company now. So yes, we're 100 people now. Wow, so even more change to, change to manage and work through. Yeah, indeed. So you must be like the change queen when it comes to sort of product <laughs> process. <laughs> so, yeah, it's certainly something I've had a lot of practice at. I think you do start to learn what works and what doesn't in terms of making sure that you're communicating that change and also involving everybody in the change because you want people to feel that they have been able to influence that change rather than the change happening to them. Yeah, absolutely. 
One of the things I really liked about the presentation and sitting in on the session was it almost made me feel like I was at a therapy session. Uh, it was, you know, hi, my name is Randy and I've had problems with prioritization in the past kind of thing. Um, so how did you guys know that you had this problem? What w- what made it so evident and made you say, okay, right, we need to go on this transformation journey? I guess it really was related to when we were making that transformation process and we realized that how we'd been working just we weren't going to be able to continue with that and we had nothing we had no other way of doing it at the time so we had to find a new framework to work with and obviously as well everybody's got we're a really small business and everybody has a really strong opinion and everybody really wants to be involved so we wanted to try and find a way to have that transparent communication with everybody um and so I guess with the best of intentions we decided to set up these fortnightly meetings where we got all the department leaders in a room together and we would lay out all of the work in a big long line so we didn't have a a pipeline process or an upstream process at that time It, it really was a forced prioritization and really very quickly that became known as the bun fight meeting um because it it really was just who shouts the loudest. It was everything was being made on gut feel and it, it just wasn't working as a process. We were trying to, people took the agile to heart in some ways and all, we're almost trying to change your priorities every two weeks, which meant we would never get anything done. You know, it's, bun fight is one of my favorite terms since I moved over to, to the UK. Uh, <laughs> it makes implicit sense as soon as you hear it, but it's something I'd never heard before. What did you then do to start, to try and improve the prioritization and to kind of feel like actually the prioritization was based more on business sort of data and decisions rather than kind of who shouted loudest. So we went through a few different ways of doing this really. So the very first change that happened was actually the executive team decided to kind of take that away and form this a product board it was called and the idea was was that the product team would write a lean canvas. So if you've not come across those before, they're the one-page business cases. And we would submit this lean canvas to the product board. And the idea is that they would then make the decision about what the most important things were to work on. What we found happened was we were able to kind of write the information on a piece of paper, but we couldn't provide any of the context around it and really bring it to life. And so the product team weren't involved in those meetings. It would just go away and disappear. And then we would very rarely get a decision back. It became a bit of a black hole. So we had all of these ideas going in and piling up. And we had the development teams with very little to work on because there was this bottleneck. So the Agile coach called Sophie Manson came and sat in that meeting. And as long as she sat in silence, she was allowed to observe. So she wasn't allowed to say anything. And while she was watching the meeting, what she realized was the product board are really struggling to make these prioritization decisions because actually they had very little information about the value that the, the, the item was going to give, the change was going to give. And mm-hmm. also there's a really big discrepancy in the size of some of these pieces of work. So some of them would be, say, two months of work and another one would be nearly a year's worth of work. And it was very difficult to, to make a priority call on those. Who was on this product board? It was members of the executive team. So we had, I think we did have the product director in there, the CTO. I think the CEO was in there as well. 
and the finance CFO. Did Sophie kind of immediately have like the silver bullet, like this is what we're all going to do, this is how we're going to do it, and here we go? It took quite a, a process of trial and error. So the first thing that we did was we started to bring the executive team and product team together to start talking about how we were working and we had a series of workshops to to kind of talk about how we should work in the future. Um, it didn't happen all at once. So I think one of the first key things we had to do was to actually move away from these epics. These really, our epics were really, really epic. They were monster mm. pieces of work. So we needed to move away from those. And we, we came up with this concept of a business outcome, which I think is something that quite a few organizations use now. And the key thing about the business outcome, it was, it was, not really focused on the what, which is what the epics were focused on. It was very much focused on the value that was going to be delivered by that piece of work. And it's the value that it will deliver to our customers, as well as the value that it will deliver to us as an organization. And that became the key focus of the business outcome. And as well as that, they were a lot smaller. So we aim to get our business outcomes to be about one sprint in size so realistically, they probably range from about half a sprint to three sprints, but it's a lot more manageable when you're working with these smaller chunks of work. How did you decide on the business outcomes that you were going to focus on? And um, did you have, was it was it easy for the executive team to get their head around this as a new sort of way of working? Yeah, so we did quite a lot of work as a, a product team to work out how we could prioritise them, because what we found was, even though we were starting to investigate the value and express the value that's we expected a piece of work to deliver it's you're still making a decision based on gut feel because you still don't you're not linking it to what's important to the business and what will drive the business forward so we came up with this concept of a value matrix and what we did was we looked at value through four different lenses so value for most organizations will kind of fall into four broad categories. So this is increasing revenue, protecting revenue, reducing costs and avoiding costs. And for most businesses, they will be wanting to deliver value in those areas. So we took those categories and we put them into our own language. So for example, protecting revenue became customer retention for us and avoiding costs became statutory and risk for us. So that relates to making sure we're legislatively compliant, for example, and that our security is where it needs to be. And we then kind of investigated which of those categories are the most important to us. I mentioned previously, we're in the financial sector, so it's probably not a surprise that actually statutory and risk is really, really important for us. So we weight those as the highest category. And we then break each of these categories down into a series of questions. So for each category, you might, for, for protect revenue, for example, you might have, will this increase our customer satisfaction by reducing their administration costs? For reducing our operational costs, you might have something to do with defects. So will this reduce the number of incidents or defects that are getting out into, this, into production? And we break that down into lots of different questions so that we can then start to actually come up with, with scores for them. So, for example, on the example of reducing administration costs for customers, will it reduce those costs by five days a month? Will it reduce costs by 50 days a month? And we would come up with a score according to that, which 
once we kind of add all those scores together, it gives us a value score, which we can then start to use to prioritise things more objectively. And then did you, once you had this value score, was it kind of like, okay, great, this is our, this is our order, this is our list, or was it then a little bit of kind of art of that doesn't feel quite right and this is probably, because that's what I found before when I've used sort of scoring is it gives you like a really good general um, feel but then you sort of need to apply a little bit of art to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the challenge with this kind of matrix is, especially for some people, they see it as being really, really scientific. So it kind of gives that illusion of it being a science and actually it still needs to be a bit of an art and yeah. there still needs to be that human conversation because the value score will certainly give you an idea of, you know, you can kind of, categorize well that will save 50 days over that one saving only 15 days so you can start to get that feel for it however you still need to take into account the factors such as the effort of the work um cost of delay might be appropriate for for a lot of organizations mm. and so you still need to have that conversation around which thing needs to come first and how did the the executives that you were working with, the people who had been in that uh, that meeting you described as a bit of a black hole, how did they take to this change? How did you take them on the journey and, and get them to embrace it? I think this is one of the, the big learnings for us as going through this process. So when we initially made the changes, we spoke to the executive team and we explained the kind of things we wanted to do. And... I think one of the, the biggest challenges we had was we then kind of assumed, oh, well, we've spoken to them, we've got their buy-in, therefore we can just go off and put in the place all our processes and we'll start doing that. Unfortunately, what we kind of failed to do was keep the executive team up to date with how we with the changes that we were making and that actually resulted in them calling a, a big workshop which was called the Product Team Boot Camp, which was basically a reset of the product team and what happened was we'd actually improved our ways of working, but we hadn't effectively communicated that back. And so the executive team didn't know that we'd made these changes. And it became quite an uncomfortable workshop as a member of the product team because it's, you know, it feels a bit like a telling off almost. Um, but actually, by the end of that workshop, we were working far more effectively with the, the executive team. I think. Previously, it felt like there was a big wall between the executive team and the product team, and it felt that it was quite difficult to to kind of get access to them as well. And I think that really that having that workshop actually broke down all those barriers and those walls and meant that we could start to work together effectively. And in the end, we carried on having the product board sessions on a fortnightly basis. However, it became a joint session between the product team and the executive team which meant that we could start to explain that context around what was coming up. And we actually stopped using lean canvases in the end because we found that the business outcomes were giving us enough information and was kind of serving enough of a purpose for our organization. I'm always amazed when people realize that actually talking to each other is really effective. Yes. <laughs> Who'd have thought of it? <laughs> Cool. So the way that you're working now is with the fortnightly product board um, and prioritizing business outcomes. So actually, we've evolved even from then now. So we've now 
during that process, we, as a product team, we started rather than it being the product te- the product board or the executive team making the decisions. As a product team, we started to make recommendations to the product board based on our research that we'd done, based on the value that things were going to deliver. And that started to build up trust between the product team and the executive team. And over time, and through kind of doing various education exercises as well about what value is and bringing in that product management learning and bringing that to the executive team through quarterly sessions and strategic sessions, we've got to a point now where actually we've empowered the product team to be making those decisions because personally, I really believe that the product team are the best people to be making those decisions. They're the ones who do all the research, they're the ones who speak to the customers, they're the ones who are learned in making value-based and objective decisions. So for me, it's really important to empower a product team to, to do that. And how much research do you have to do to get a good estimate of value? <laughs> that's a, That's an interesting question. I think it varies. It depends on what it is. So... I guess if it's an iteration, you might have already got some of that research, but you need to build on that. So you kind of know the area that you're looking in and the questions you need to ask. So it makes it a little bit quicker. If it's something new, you kind of have to go through that learning process of understanding what the value could be. I think an example of that, we've actually been introducing this kind of scoring to a group of our customers as well so that they can understand why we're making the decisions we are and how we come to the decision of what the most important thing is to build. We're a business-to-business company, I should explain that. So, yeah, we work closely with um, many of our customers. And as a product team, we'd made some assumptions that a piece of work was going to deliver some cost savings for our customers. But actually, by showing the customers our business outcomes and explaining what value we thought that enhancement was going to deliver – the, the customers actually started highlighting to us other points of value that it was going to deliver, which actually gave us more directions to, to research in and understand, which if we hadn't have worked collaboratively with our customers in that way, we wouldn't have even spotted ourselves. Mm. So I think it's it's difficult to put a number on it. it it's, I think it just varies depending on what the work is. And how is this kind of developed and and changed way of working affected the the culture within the organization when we very first started we were very very siloed as departments so the product team and the development teams didn't even sit in the same office room we sat in separate rooms we didn't really interact and now obviously we work very very closely together and at first there was there was a culture of mistrust between both sides. So at first there was a lot of suspicion and mistrust that the product team wouldn't prioritize the right thing and didn't understand the value and just were working on the, their own agenda. And there was a lot of mistrust from the product team that the d- developers didn't understand why we wanted to work on certain things that they would have their own pet projects that they'd work on secretly. So there was a real it's quite a, you know, not a great culture, really, that everybody's not really trusting each other. Through this process, by making value really transparent to everybody, by explaining to everything, everybody why things are being prioritised and making that really visible, it's really built up a culture of trust. And 
it also helps motivate the developers because they understand that what they're building is going to make a difference for our customers and our business. And actually, one of the, the really big things we also do is make sure that we go back once we've delivered something and understand, did it actually deliver the benefit that we expected and feed that back to the developers? Because then they know that what they built did actually make a difference. I'd like to go back to, to the value matrix just for a minute that you created. Um the one I see most commonly used is the rice one for you know reach impact confidence and effort. How different is what you're using from that? I mean, there's lots of different and really useful prioritization methods out there. So I think it's just a case of finding the right one for your particular products, the level of maturity of that product. I mean, we're working with a very mature product um, that's been around for kind of ultimately for 40 years. So it's very different for working from working for a startup. And I think the difference really is that using this, it's it's probably a bit more of a heavyweight prioritization method than some. Um, what it does mean is that when you're making that call on what the impact is, so rice being reach, impact, confidence, effort, when you're making that that decision on that impact score, it gives you a framework for making that decision and it makes it more objective. So for example, by actually putting the scores on there and saying that it will score an eight. If it's over a 50-day saving, it will score a one. If it's only a 10-day saving, mm. you're getting that consistency across the product team as well. So if I score it versus one of my colleagues scoring it, we're going to come out with the same idea for impact. So I have, I've had a lot of experiences of me saying, oh, that's a really big impact and somebody else thinking, oh, that's a small impact and, and vice versa. So it, it takes that subjective opinion out of it i think you could even still use rice scoring with a value matrix if you really wanted to you could still come up with that impact use it to come up with the impact score and then use rice to do that we've personally chosen to keep it separate because actually what we like to do is kind of be more conscious around that prioritization because it can become very easy to just prioritize the quick wins all the time and actually, we've certainly found that we need to make sure we're balancing those quick wins against the bigger pieces of value and obviously try and break those bigger pieces of value down as much as you can. But you still kind of need to make sure you're spending enough time doing the bigger pieces of work as well as the small pieces of work. And do you ever find um, with the method that you're using at the moment that people disagree with the, the prioritization? So we get that a lot less now as long as we make it transparent to people about why some things are priority it becomes a lot easier to have that conversation I think mm -hmm. the biggest challenge comes actually with balancing the really small pieces of work so things like defect fixes against the really big strategic pieces of work because what we found is with agile it kind of sometimes feels like you've got of the perspective of some people is you've just got this unlimited resource. You've got this unlimited amount of time to do everything. And their thing is only four hours of work. So, you know, you should just do it. And suddenly all these four hour pieces of work can add up to be an entire release of work. So it's mm -hmm. sometimes quite difficult to deliver that message in terms of balancing the really big priorities against small things. So you got to a certain point in your transformation process where you did something incredibly brave. 
uh, as you said, it's a, a mature product. It's been going for a long time and you had a very big backlog and you took the backlog out back and drowned it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite a drastic measure. <laughs> Early on in the process, we we did lay out the entire backlog of work and we added it up with, you know, very finger in the air estimates. And we reckoned we probably had about 20 years worth of work there. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. We realised we probably weren't going to be able to do all of that. Certainly not, you know, in the near future. <laughs> we decided that we needed to start again, really. And it's it, it came, we could go back and try and investigate every piece of work and work out what we were going to do. But it was just going to take an inordinate amount of time to do that and would be quite a wasteful thing to do, really. So we realised we just needed to to throw that backlog away and start again and in reality that that did take a few sessions to to get there because obviously everybody had their own pet project that they thought was really important and should you know should not be put in the bin but it really made a difference to us as an organization because when we started again it meant we knew that the things we were starting on were the really high value things to be working on and it also meant that we could actually start to communicate no better to people Mm. so it's so easy to say oh it's on the backlog we'll do it at some point and just keep that message dragging on um but certainly what we found from experience is if you keep telling people no for a period of sometimes two three four years or that you know it's on the backlog for two three or four years they're going to be a lot more disappointed and upset potentially if you then tell them no after keeping them hanging on for that period of time because it's almost like that change becomes more and more important for them because they keep hanging on to it whereas Mm -hmm. if you tell somebody no straight away it's yes they'll be a bit disappointed at at first but they kind of get over it and move on to the next thing so it really helps us communicate that message effectively yeah, or I guess um, in some cases, if they don't believe it should be a no, it might inspire them to come back with more evidence for why it should be done. Yeah, so one thing we do um, make sure we do as a product team is we work with our stakeholders to understand what that value is. It's really important that people feel that their idea has been heard. So when we kind of have these difficult conversations, I find it really helps to make sure that person knows that they've had that opportunity to express that view and they've actually know that you understand the value of that item because I think in the past it's or it can be quite tempting to kind of set that expectation up front of oh we've got some really important work right now I'm not sure if we'll be able to fit this in but actually I found it's more effective to listen to the the person openly and their idea openly and use those active listening skills to do that and paraphrase their idea and summarize their idea and show that you understand the value of that idea and then explain what the cost of that idea is and the cost of that idea might be that we're not going to deliver another strategic piece of work that has a higher value and you can almost start to get the person to come up with the know themselves that way and they start to understand why you can't deliver their piece of work. So one area when I'm prioritizing things, one thing that I find quite difficult is, um, you know, you have the the kind of the business value, the user value, and then you have the tech team saying, you know, we need to do this and 
all of these different projects in order to make sure that the tech is sort of scalable and secure and um, not full of tech debt. So um, how in the in the value matrix, I'm, I'm assuming you've kind of address that those different areas or those different pillars of work in order to then uh, be able to prioritize in those different areas. How how does that work? Yeah, so the four different categories kind of cover off those different areas. So you've got the keeping your existing customers happy, you've got winning new customers or generating new revenue, maybe through services or another way perhaps. And you've got that kind of internal operational efficiency. So that might be things such as removing technical debt, improving tools for the developers, um, and you weigh that up against statutory and risk. So as an organization, we actually weight each of those categories. So the ones which are kind of the most important to us, so statutory and risk, um, is weighted the highest so that when we're scoring, we're timesing that score by the weighting to make sure that if it's something that's legislative, it's always going to be done in time for that legislation getting in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went through a process of, to actually get those scorings right, we went through a process of, on quite a few different occasions, laying out all the work on the table with the prioritisation scores and saying, don't worry too much about what's in the value matrix because people can get very bogged down by that. Is that value matrix a result of that coming up with the best scores? Is it coming up with the scores that we'd expect as an organisation? Is it fitting in with our overall direction and strategy? And in that yeah. way, you can kind of tweak the, the matrix until you get it to a point where it's it's generally working for you. I think another thing that we do actually is we do set aside 5% of our time for continuous improvement for the development teams. So that 5% of time enables them to come up with those new tools. And we've been doing things such as moving our environments onto new and better hardware. So it it gives them time to to make all those tweaks that will keep them working quickly or help them to work faster in the future. Is it just the 5% for continuous improvement or do you you have a percentage for any other... um sort of categories of of work so yeah it's we only do the five percent for continuous improvement i think (laughs) there's many people who would really like a 10 percent slice or a 20 percent slice for for their (laughs) thing i think we'd end up with the whole release would just be sliced out by these different Mm. areas and actually we'd find we were probably working on things which were a lower priority and than some of the other things in the backlog so we do make sure that we we try and avoid having buckets of days, as it were, or buckets of time that, that are allocated to certain things. And what, what tools are you using to to kind of manage all of this information around your value matrix? We use a couple of things. So we use Confluence for our value matrix because in that way, um, the organisation has access to it. So whenever they're raising an, an idea, we do encourage people to, to look at that and um understand that this is how we will assess your idea do you have the supporting information um to put that idea forward because this these are the things that we'll be looking at and we can help you with that um another way we kind of manage our actual workflow or our pipeline of work is using aha so we keep all our business outcomes in there which enables us to to have that kind of rigor of process that we know where things are up to and 
I mean, really, you can't beat a good meeting where you've got everything physically out on the table either. So on a fortnightly basis, we have those meetings where we just go through our pipeline of work as a product team. And yes, that is to prioritize things. But actually, the majority of that meeting is spent just making sure that we've explored the different areas of value and making sure that if one person's been working on something, they've got another set of eyes to look at it so that we're avoiding those biases that even we as product people can build up. Making all these changes with the team of changing uh, the way you do prioritization, the way you communicate and everything else has had a real effect. Uh, Can you tell us about how everyone's working together now? Yeah, the big impact this has had for us as well is around how work actually moves through the pipeline and gets to done. So making those business outcomes smaller because if you kind of look at Q theory, which is all really interesting, actually, if you get into that, um, things tend to move small through more efficiently if they're small and fairly consistently sized packages of work. So by making our business outcomes around a sprint in length and, and more consistently that size, things start to move through the workflow a lot quicker. And when we very first started this process, we we did a value stream mapping exercise, which is where you lay out a process on the table and you put down lead times of how long is something waiting in the queue for and how long is something actually worked on. And so for our product, we found that from an idea being created to that idea actually being fully developed and released to our customers, our lead time was actually seven years, so roughly seven years when we first started. It, I mean, wow. it was quite difficult to measure it quite accurately at that stage. But uh, yeah, it was it was a long time. And obviously that's going to deliver a lot of dissatisfaction because if people are put an idea in three years ago and they've still not seen anything and or heard back that you're not going to do it, it's they're not going to be very happy about that. And so one of the biggest things that this process has, the impact that this process has had, so by making things smaller and also by saying no to things as well and not just leaving them in that pipeline. Our average lead time is around three months. It's something we're still working on as well, but it's a huge difference to where we were a, a couple of years ago. It's massive. Mm. Yeah, it was It was quite eye-opening when you, when you lay it all out. Yeah, but as you said, it's not perfect now. So what's the next challenge? I think I mentioned before, one of our biggest challenges at the moment is how do you balance those small pieces of work and defects and um, really small requests against doing your strategic work? Because actually you can say no to a defect quite easily because, well, that's nowhere near as much benefit as doing our strategic piece of work. But when if you said no to every defect, that impact starts to accumulate because the perception of the quality of your product will go down if there's lots and lots of defects mm-hmm. and workarounds in it. So it's difficult to to quantify that value on an individual defect basis. So it's kind of how do you balance that that flow and make sure that we're still dealing with our technical debt and our defects. And I think the our old CTO, Steve Garnett, had a really great analogy for this actually because there's two parts to it. And it's kind of like technical debt is kind of like your basement is flooding and you're there trying to bail out all the water and you keep trying to bail out all the water. But if you don't turn that tap off, (laughs) then you're wasting your time. 
So for us, it's understanding what are the taps that we need to turn off at the same time. How do we firefight or bail out the the impact of of that technical debt? I think it's an issue that a lot of businesses face. You know, you're trying to move quickly and um, you know deliver value to to users and to the business uh, on on those strategic projects or those new features or whatever it is. Um, and then in in moving fast, you you ultimately and just the way that te- technology and and stuff changes, there's there's always a whole ton of stuff that um, that needs to be considered as well, and it's something that comes up a lot in conversations that I have. So yeah, familiar problem. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're work- working on a, a a very brand new product, you you're going to have some of that technical debt and. I think if you're working on a new product, my best advice to you would be to to make sure you're not building up that technical debt and make sure you've got a strategy in place to to manage that because it it seems like really small things and in isolation all each piece of technical debt is a really tiny thing, but it really does add up. So if you were starting this journey over from scratch now, what would you do differently for you know for someone who's uh, saying this sounds great, uh, it may not lead me to perfection but it's a hell of a lot better than where I am now it certainly is a journey and I think the first thing is to to accept that you're never going to get this right first time it's something that you need to keep iterating on and you know don't don't get disheartened it's it's making sure that you keep trying because you will get there um I think it's really important to experiment with different ways of working not become wedded to one solution try out different solutions try it out for a month and then try a different way for a month and see what works the best and see what you get the best impact from and make sure that you've got a way of measuring that impact so you know what the best impact is I mean we're we're product people so we're quite lucky that we're quite good at that Um, so make sure you apply those product skills of being able to quantify value to how quantifying the value that your processes are delivering as well and I think the biggest lesson I certainly had was around that stakeholder engagement piece and making sure that you get your stakeholders to self-elect into what they're interested in. So make sure that everybody has everybody who might have an interest in this has that opportunity to opt in to communication about it and opt in to being interested about being kept up to date with where you're getting up to. Um, because it's very easy to think that you've got buy-in so it's easy to to get buy-in through a meeting or through a conversation but if you don't maintain that buy-in and keep that person bought in over time you will lose that because you'll they'll forget it they'll be working on things that are important to them in their world and if you don't keep that communication up then they're probably going to to forget that conversation. I can't remember who said it, but uh, I did see a quote from someone recently about how much they hate the word buy-in. But, you know, how do you know when you have it? How do you define it? And how do you know when you've lost it? And it's, yeah. it's a fun one. <laughs> Holly, thank you so Brilliant. much. You're welcome. I love that we spend so much time talking about the theory of how to do this stuff, but it's really great to dig in deep with someone and review how hard it is to actually make it work and the rewards you get when it does all come together. Yeah, I've definitely been in situations where it feels a bit hopeless uh, to fix processes and it's just no way to really do things well. And talking to others, talking to my peers who have been there 
and experienced it. And certainly when they actually can report back on real improvements and talk about the effect it's had, it's always incredibly refreshing. <laughs> and this is not your therapy session, Randy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was great. Um, so who are we going to get to cheer us up next week? <laughs> We're going back to California to talk to Kai Haley. Uh, she's the lead of Design Relations and the Sprint Master Academy at Google. You probably already know about Design Sprint, and you may have even done a few yourself. But Kai tells us a lot about the different flavors of Design Sprints, some amazing tips about facilitating, and a whole lot more. And that's all from us today. We hope you've enjoyed our chat with Holly. Please let us know by leaving us a comment. And if you liked it, please like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'd love to know what you think. Please tweet us at mtppod. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Check out your local product tank today. Find it at mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. And here's global product tank manager, Mark Abraham, to tell us more about what product tank is. Product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Have you seen a great talk? Nominate a future guest on the podcast channel on the Mind the Product Slack. You can find that at mindtheproduct.slack.com. If you want to learn more about product management, take a look at mindtheproduct.com slash training to see what courses are on near you. Emily Tate is our executive producer. Our theme music comes from the German band POW, featuring Arnie Kittler of Product Tank Hamburg. And that's goodbye from Randy and Lily. See you next time. Bye.